Welcome to the Dividend Cafe weekly market commentary focused on dividends in your portfolio and dividends in your understanding of economic life. Hello and welcome to today's COVID and Markets podcast brought to you by Dividend Cafe of the Bonson Group. Today is Thursday, August the 27th, and we are going to walk through the whole deal, uh, market today, um, big updates in the Federal Reserve, the housing market, policy front, energy sector, and uh, of course, all of the up-to-date COVID health information, um, particularly the more America-centric impact of what's going on with, uh, with coronavirus. Uh, as far as the market today, the Dow rose 160 points. It, it fell off about 100 points in the final hour. It had been up over 250. Uh, but the S&P uh, was not up much, and, and the NASDAQ was actually down on the day. So it was one of those days where uh, the names that have been out of favor were doing better. And then the big tech stuff was not doing as well. Um, and, and the overall market was just kind of uh, choppy. And nevertheless, the Dow itself had, had a pretty good day. Um, in terms of where we are on the COVID front, you know, uh, for me personally, I'm really enjoying now doing this every other day or whatever the new schedule is versus every day. And one of the reasons is not only is it obviously a bit of a relief to just the massive amount of reading and writing and and data mining and so forth I've been doing for four or five months, but also it is um, uh, the fact that there's less COVID information now, less COVID relevant news. And I can't stand writing with a mandate to kind of go find news or create it or make up information that will sound relevant or interesting. And I think it's one of the great flaws of the 24-hour news cycle, and particularly in financial media, that there's not 24 hours of information, and so you have to go create it. It's, it's not really their fault. It's the necessity of filling in that time. And then you end up often filling it with things that are really not newsworthy. And as it pertains to COVID, there is plenty of stuff going on, but every day I think becomes a bit redundant, and, and it risks the temptation to manufacture uh, news and and make it more appetizing and and I just don't want to do that. I, I I will tell you this: as far as where the news, the the overall direction of our fighting with COVID in America goes, we have one state in the country. There's 50 states in the United States. One state, Georgia has more than 20% of their hospital beds being used by COVID patients. 45 states are under 10% of their hospital beds being used by coronavirus patients. 27 states, over half, 5% or less of their total beds are being used by COVID patients. Our confirmed new cases are down over 37% from the July peak of a month ago nationally. They're down over 12%, by the way, on a daily average basis just from last week. Uh, The case decline is rapid. And again, I believe it's hospitalizations and case severity that has to drive public policy, not merely the existence of cases. I've said that over and over. I think the market agrees, the economy agrees, more and more of the country is agreeing. 
having to live with the reality of cases is part of our, our deal now. But when the actual cases themselves that for right or for wrong have been the subject of much controversy are declining, it really does add ammunition to the argument for a greater freedom of movement and activity, which of course is an economic plus. Now, the states not seeing a rapid decline in hospitalization still don't have a high level of hospitalization, but those five states are Alaska, Hawaii, Montana, West Virginia, excuse me, that's four states. And more or less, the uh, national trend, as I mentioned, 37% from the peak, is reflecting an overwhelmingly declining COVID hospitalization. I would suggest that it's somewhat logical that if you're not getting increasing hospitalizations and in fact are getting decreasing hospitalizations, that you're going to get decreasing deaths because very, very few people die of COVID that weren't hospitalized first. I, I hope that's intuitive to you. Um, and even apart from the dropping hospitalizations and the dropping cases, the hospitalizations per confirmed cases has dropped substantially from the spring levels, meaning March, April, at which unambiguously supports the notion that our recent infections have affected a less vulnerable and more healthy group in society. And then I believe it is lending more support to the idea that many epidemiologists, not all, have proposed that the virus is losing potency as it, as it uh, continues to, to mutate and, and, and work its way uh, through infecting the society. Uh, there is a new study, by the way, from a team of researchers, I believe it's 26, uh, you know, PhD uh, immunologists, epidemiologists, research scientists from the La Jolla Institute of Immunology providing support to the notion, and it is more and more becoming a consensus scientific view, that prior exposure to the coronaviruses that caused the common cold may be providing some protection against COVID. The question though, I think, is not whether or not this is true, but how reliable and long lasting these protections are. I, I would certainly agree that that science is not settled yet. And, and then also um, whether or not it is just simply lending itself to a weaker case versus no case at all. Uh, cross immunity though is an important part of T cell protections and an important part of evaluating our understanding of where the whole herd immunity threshold may be. Um, and obviously it, it could very well be explaining some of the less symptomatic and, and severe cases. Um, but like I said, there are conflicting studies. And so this study from La Jolla Institute was quite interesting. Um, I'll quote from that paper, this potential pre-existing cross-reactive T cell immunity to SARS-CoV-2 has, which is COVID-19, has broad implications as it could explain aspects of differential COVID-19 clinical outcomes. It could influence epidemiological models of herd immunity, or it could affect the performance of COVID-19 candidate vaccines. So big study, big subject at the heart of where we go with COVID. Um, the chair of Harvard's Department of Immunology uh, Sarah Fortune says clearly there is some cross protection for other, from other seasonal coronaviruses. Um, so, you know, this, this is a story that needs to continue to be understood and may very well result in 
uh, improved and enhanced understanding of herd immunity and a lowering of the threshold expectation. Uh, you may have heard the news today. It may even be part of the market's movement up today, although I doubt it because the market was so kind of sporadic. But I do think it's very, very good news that the FDA gave emergency use authorization to Abbott Labs for their $5 rapid response antigen test. The test is tiny, it's cheap, it's fast, and it uses similar technology to a home pregnancy test and results are expected in 15 minutes. You may not be surprised to know that I don't know anything about the technology of a home pregnancy test either, uh, but tens of millions of these tests will ship in September now. They will not be sold directly to consumers. They're intended for use by medical professionals, but that could include school nurses and others, um, and the accuracy levels are estimated to be roughly 97%. Um, well, let's see here. I got to kind of move this along. I did read a study this morning. Um, there's a data scientist from MIT who I followed really closely for the last several months who went through and analyzed whether or not, because see, we're trying to look at, at where second wave occurrences may kind of contradict herd immunity thinking, all right? But a lot of the states this summer, as I pointed out, didn't really have a second wave. They had a first wave. So saying, oh, well, you know, Arizona went through March, April, but then it got all of these new cases in the summer, so maybe herd immunity doesn't exist, but really it doesn't argue against herd immunity because Arizona never got it in March, April. It was very, very minimal exposure and very little penetration. Uh, Louisiana, though, had a pretty widely penetrated infection um, in March, April, and then Louisiana did participate in the summer uh, surge of cases. And so there was some questions as to whether or not Louisiana argued against the herd immunity dynamic but what um, this data scientist from MIT did is just study in detail um, the, the situation in Louisiana and really concluded that they had a high number in certain counties and precincts or parishes of Louisiana in March, April, and then a high number in totally different areas in the summer. So he's arguing that actually Louisiana's quote-unquote second wave is an affirmation of herd immunity um, uh, that that it went to such a different geography and did not spread into some of the same areas second time around. The, a quadrant of charts exists at covidandmarkets.com uh, showing the declining deaths, hospitalizations on national level, showing the fact states and they're just utter um, collapsing of cases on a seven-day moving average basis, where we are with testing and positivity ratios, uh, encouraging stuff all around there, and obviously our standard about the positivity rate and, and total testing done um, and so forth, okay? Uh, let's see here. We'll move on into the, the state levels in Florida. Um, emergency room visits for COVID-like illnesses, uh, which I believe has been the most reliable leading indicator to see where then hospitalizations Mortality as equipment use end up going uh, is down 75% in Florida from its July 7th peak. And listen to this the per capita mortality rate for Florida seems to have peaked out at just 28% of what New York's per capita mortality was, despite all the concerns this summer that Florida was headed to a New York March April level of lethal uh, COVID. So we thank God it never got to that point. 
but really at just 28% of the, that level, it's a data point that analysts really probably can do a lot with. There were 135 deaths reported in Florida today, but over half, over 70, were from the month of July. Um, that's how long that lag of uh, reporting and, and whatnot and uh, death certificate surveillance has been. I'm not going to be talking about Arizona anymore, Lord willing. Um, and there's three charts at COVID markets that explain why. And you can just look at them visually and see the inpatient bed use um, for COVID people, the ICU bed use for COVID positives, and then the available beds in their hospitals. And when you look at these three charts visually, I think you'll quickly get an understanding of why Arizona is no longer in need of my coverage. Orange County, California is getting to the same point. I just want to keep the clock, the, the, the countdown going. We're now five days on the county monitoring list with all the metrics being uh, uh, successfully overcome. And uh, Riverside County, by the way, hospitalizations down 60% from their uh, July 14th low about five, five or six weeks ago. Uh, Texas, uh, their hospitalizations are down 32% in the last two weeks. So we're moving in the right direction and uh, some good links and all the normal things we have at covidmarkets.com. Quickly on the stock market, okay? Top five companies in S&P 500 uh, versus the bottom 495, a 42% differential in performance since March. By far, biggest ever, it was 36% back in 1999 uh, in the final innings of the tech boom. Stunning. And uh, there's more on this in, in Dividend Cafe this week that will come out on Friday. Nothing to report on the public policy front other than the Speaker Pelosi said she did actually talk on the phone now with White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, but that her conclusion from that call was that we're in a very bad place, a, a tough impasse and not moving at all. So that either is no news at all because you expect everyone to, you know, refer to nothing getting done or it's reinforcement that nothing's going to get done. We'll see. Uh, oil and energy, um, huge declining stockpiles, allowing prices to firm up so much. Oil sitting, you know, comfortably has been climbing above 43 a barrel. Uh, refining capacity has been closed at 84% of Gulf of Mexico oil output because of the hurricane. Uh, inventories fell another 4.5 million barrels last week. That's on top of the 3 million barrels uh, from the week uh, after. So you, you, there's a chart we put up just showing the declining inventories that followed the massive increase of inventories throughout the month of a April. Really started in March and then accelerated in April. Stayed kind of flat. May, June, July, and now second half of July all through August has been declining, which is providing quite a robust support, quite a favorable support to crude oil prices. On the housing market, you really got to read COVID and markets to understand it. But I have, I'm very grateful to one of the great uh, housing research uh, intellectuals in this country, Edward Pinto, at the uh, American Enterprise Institute's Housing Center, who did a report this week that I was going to skip over, and I just decided to jump into it and, and really learned a lot from it. 40% of all loans Fannie and Freddie have done now um, are, are receiving a waiver of appraisal, okay? And that is stunning to me, but the number started off 
uh, the COVID era at 25%. And last year, you know, going in 2019, we're at 5%. So something caused them to give going from 5 to 25% of loans a waiver on getting an appraisal done. And something else caused that number to go all the way up now to 40%. Now, you, there's a lot of reasons people can say appraisal is not necessary or whatever. But my point is, they're doing two-thirds of the mortgages in the country. And this seems to me to be a pretty significant risk mitigation that's gone away. Um, I also have some data on refinancing. 67% of all mortgages done in Q2 were refinancings. That's neither positive or negative. It just sort of is what it is. Rates got very low and there weren't a lot of new purchase apps to do in the first half of the quarter because the economy was shut down. But I just want to point out $513 billion was refinanced in the second quarter alone. That's up 130% from last year. Uh, That is 1.69 million borrowers refinancing. So if they're just simply getting a lower rate, improving the mortgage product they're using, that's a great thing. But if they're doing cash out refinances, I just want to remind you of Bonson's law, falling home prices did not create the 2008 crisis. A lack of protective equity did. We're going to be watching it very closely. The Fed, you may have heard by now, did indeed formalize that they are adjusting their 2% inflation target policy to allow for an average of 2%, which basically allows them to run above 2%. Um, I don't want 2% inflation, let alone 2.5% inflation. But this upping the ante doesn't bother me because I I don't see them being able to create the 2%, let alone, quote unquote, run hot. All this does is rhetorically formalize what they've been doing or committed to doing or saying or wanting to try to do for a long time anyways. But as you can see from two charts I put at covidmarkets.com today, If it were just as easy as announcing that they want to create higher inflation, then they would do so. But they can't do it. They've been unable to do it. And I think that's the key here, that the velocity of money needed to generate inflation is not coming. And that velocity is very positively correlated with our unproductive debt. That's the problem. That's what the Fed's battling. Okay. So um, we don't quite yet have futures uh, for tomorrow. We'll, we'll um, uh, have our weekly Dividend Cafe commentary to you tomorrow. But I hope you got a lot out of this uh, today's COVID Markets Missive. Please reach out with any questions. Please rate us on your uh, iTunes player or your, your chosen method of listening to the podcast. Uh, subscribe, you know, share, do whatever you want to do. But more than anything else, Reach out to the Bonson Group if you have any questions. We'd like to better understand the era we're living in around COVID and markets. The Bonson Group is a group of investment professionals registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free risk. There is no guarantee that the investment process or investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance and is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analyses, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary and does not constitute investment advice. The Bonser Group and Hightower shall not in any way be liable for claims and make no expressed or implied 
representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information, or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information referenced herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the Bonson Group and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates. Hightower Advisors do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented to any entity as tax advice or tax information. Tax laws vary based on the client's individual circumstances and can change at any time without notice. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor for any related questions.